Thank you. Well, today's Palm Sunday, and uh, the day when historically, biblically, it's when Christ Jesus comes uh, as the Messianic King to the Jewish people. Uh, We read Psalm 24. We read Luke 19. We could have gone to any of the Gospels because all four of the Gospels record the triumphal entry, and and they're very similar. They each adds uh, a little bit uh, additional information. But it was was significant. It It was when the Messiah presented himself as the promised king. Now, this is not uh, a lesson in the Old Testament, but, but there are some significant covenants in the Old Testament that, that, that you need to, to think about whenever you, you talk about the triumphal entry, one of which is the Abrahamic covenant. Um, the other is the Mosaic covenant that was specific for Israel whenever... They were in the land, and the temple was there, and God was in their, their midst. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. You, it doesn't just apply to Israel. It applies to, parts of it applies to us. It's still a part that God will fulfill to, to Israel as far as the land and blessing and a, and a kingdom one day. The Mosaic covenant was temporal, meaning it was, it was for a specific time in a specific place. Mosaic Covenant had the law and the Ten Commandments and all kinds of other things. I'm not saying that those are temporal, but we obviously know that the law of God, the character of God, existed long before Moses ever got the tablets on the, on the, on the mountain. I mean, it wasn't just in the Exodus when, when God decided, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder is, is one of his laws. The, the law of God's eternal, so it was clearly before. But the Mosaic Covenant was specific to Israel. Um, There's another one, the Davidic Covenant. A promise that God made to David about a kingdom. Specifically about a king. He told David that there would be a throne. Your throne will be established forever. And there will be a king that will set upon that throne. And that king we know was... Jesus Christ. Very clear from Scripture. And if I had time and multiple sermons, I could prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt based upon Scripture that Jesus fulfilled all of those promises um, and prophecies made. This is the moment. This is the moment in which the Jewish people, Israel living partially in the land, yes, being controlled by Romans, but with the temple, with the holies of holies, with all of those things, this is when their king and Messiah presents himself to them. It was fully planned, uh, carried out by Christ with prophetic perfection, contrary to what Bill O'Reilly declares... Jesus was not a political pawn who got unintentionally swept up in a revolt. I didn't watch his killing Jesus last night, but if, if you, you did, or you've heard him talk about it, he specifically says there was no spiritual 
or religious or theological purpose for the death of Jesus whatsoever. It was heresy. It's exactly right. It's totally contrary to Scripture. Uh, and I could take you, if I had three other sermons, I could take you to the Bible and show you beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus knew exactly what He was doing and He was fully in control of every aspect. And the whole purpose that He came was to die. He set His face toward Jerusalem. And He went there to lay His life down. And if you listen to, to Bill, Jesus was unsuspecting and just kind of got caught up and and he was he was a revolutionary you know there was a there was a lot of political unrest about Rome and Jesus just got caught up in that good man gave us good teaching good philosophies to follow really sad thing that that he had to take the fall for for what was going on between the Jews and the and the Romans um Jesus actually orchestrates this scene which sets in motion the week of conflict which culminates with the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is led away in the middle of the night and leads him to the five uh, kangaroo court trials and ultimately his crucifixion. The Bible even says that Jesus gave up the ghost. He's the one that gave up his life. Yes, the leaders of Israel were accountable for what they did. Yes, Pilate and the Romans were accountable. But but no man took Jesus' life. He laid it down. I mean, think about that even theologically. Can you kill God? God laid his life down down. It was a very public event. Um, He knew what he was doing. And what we read this morning or heard in Luke is that Israel should have known as well. Uh, Their Messiah had come as he promised. A prophet of God in the spirit of Elijah, being John the Baptist, had announced his coming and preached repentance to prepare the people for it. Um, If you go to Israel today, you will hear the little children singing songs about Elihu, Elijah, and that he's going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. Before Messiah comes, Elijah must come. They're still singing the songs today. Of course, the children of Israel, Israelites, were singing those songs then and knew. And John the Baptist came, the spirit of Elijah, to prepare the way. All the signs and miracles foretold that the Jews knew well Messiah would would accomplish were were performed by Jesus. You remember when John had his moment of question when he was in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus and they say, are you, John wants to know, are you he, are you the one or should we look for another? Do you remember how Jesus answers? Tell John, who knew his Old Testament well, tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached to the poor. Isaiah 61. And that's all the answer Jesus had to give John. 
And John was totally comforted and confirmed because that's exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do. And the Messiah was going to come to the temple. He was a promised king. And obviously that was one of the issues. They were looking for a conquering king rather than a Zechariah king who, who would come. And Jesus came. On the very day foretold by Daniel the prophet, in the very place promised, Mount of Olives, accompanied by kingly symbols on a colt, into the temple, crowds crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Years upon years of promise, page after page of Scripture, prophet upon prophet foretelling. And Jesus said, they missed the day of their visitation. Which is why He declared destruction is going to come on the temple, which came in 70 A.D. Which is why there's no temple there today. Which is why there's no sacrificial system. There's no altar. There's a priesthood, but the priests don't have anything that, to work with. Uh, there's no holies of holies. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no sacrificial tools. There's, there's no animal sacrifice, even to this very, even to this very day. And all of that ended in 70 A.D., just as Jesus foretold. Well, I want to tell you this morning that just as that promised king came to the Jews, came to Israel as his people, King Jesus is coming again. Beyond any shadow of a doubt, it's not a faint, quaint religious idea. It's fact. Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. The very same one that walked. The very same one that you read about in the pages. The very same one that called the disciples. The very same one that hung on a cross. The very same one that rose from the dead is coming again. And God doesn't want you to make the same mistake that the Jews made. He doesn't want you to either think that it's not coming, and He doesn't want you to miss it. If you're a believer, that truth, He wants you to be comforted by it. Because He's going to come and He's going to gather you unto Himself, and forever we will be with the Lord. If you're not a believer yet, and you don't know Christ, He wants you to look to Him for salvation. Because there's coming a day when, when you won't have that opportunity. And the coming of Christ wouldn't be a comfort for you then. It would be a fearful and trembling thing because He wouldn't come to gather you as His church unto Himself. He would come in judgment. And I want to show you why it's a comfort. So open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. These passages are read a lot during funerals. 
I've read them a lot during funerals, and rightly so. This is a section about the comfort that we should have as believers about Christ's coming. Remember the resistance that the religious leaders had about Jesus' first coming? We should have comfort as the church about Christ's coming. Verse 13, Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means perceive those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. I'm going to show you three comforting facts about Christ's coming for His his church. Jesus is coming again, and He's coming for His church first. He's also coming in judgment at a later time after that. This passage is spoken to the church about Christ's coming for the church, and it's for their comfort. So... There are three comforting facts about Christ coming for his, for his church. Jesus coming for His church is also called the rapture. You've probably heard that before. The word rapture is, a, is an English word which, which comes from the Latin word raptus. Uh, it's found in the Latin translation, the Vulgate. That's where the origin of the word rapture comes from. The Greek word that's found in... 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, is the word harpazo. It means to be snatched away or to, te- to, be, to be taken for oneself. The English translation is caught up or taken away. It's... So the, while the word rapture is not found in the Bible, the truth is clearly presented here. And Paul says that the first comforting fact about Christ coming for His church is that it's based upon His resurrection. It's based upon His resurrection. Look at verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, here's Paul's argument, even so, God will bring with Him those who sleep or died in Jesus. Now, the problem Paul was addressing here at the Thessalonians was fear. They're under persecution. He had he had clearly preached to them the, the imminent return of Christ. The Thessalonians believed that Jesus was coming. You can see that plainly in these passages. And it could happen any day, any moment, just like the Bible teaches. 
but people were dying. Dying under persecution. Uh, dying of natural causes. And they were fearful. They were worried. Okay, what happens to them? I mean, they died before Jesus returned. We know He's coming, but they died. And so what happens? Now think about this from a not from your church standpoint where you have the whole Bible and, and everything is clear and, you know, angles have been worked for 2,000 years. Think about the, the Thessalonians who, who are here and the gospel has been proclaimed to them and you're, you know, you're three decades past the resurrection and you don't know everything that you know. The question that may come in your, may come in your mind. And Paul says to them, I don't want you to be ignorant about that. Um, I don't want you to be uninformed. You have hope, which is one of the reasons why we share this passage at, at funerals. You sorrow for the loss, the separation that comes with the death of a loved one, but you do so with hope. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Strange in the sense that your heart aches for a fellow believer, whether it's husband, wife, child, whoever it is, friend, and yet you're hopeful. You know that you're going to see him again. There's, there's a, a beautiful thing that happens in Christian funerals where they affirm both their sorrow because they're human beings and also their hopefulness. And you sing. Does it make sense to sing about the praise of Jesus when someone has died? Yeah, it does. If you're a believer and you understand what, what Paul is saying here about, about the hope. What is that hope? I don't want you to be uninformed. You have hope. What is the hope? Well, he gives it in verse 14. For is the explanation for the hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him, Jesus, those who sleep in, in, in Jesus. The basis for the hope is the resurrection. Paul says because of the resurrection of Jesus, those who die trusting in His work shall rise when He returns for them because Jesus rose from the dead. It's the same argument that uh, he uses in 1 Corinthians he tells them the hope of a believer is the resurrection of Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians fifteen sixteen through 19 If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Now think about what he just did here. He flipped it. If, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Listen to what he says here in Thessalonians. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, your loved one that you're grieving about will rise again. So he starts with the resurrection of Jesus and says the resurrection of Jesus is the reason that you have hope that, that the ones who are already asleep, the ones who are already dead, will rise. In 1 Corinthians, he says, if they don't rise, then Christ didn't rise. I mean, you understand the significance of that? He is linking the resurrection of believers with the resurrection of Christ, that one can't happen without the other. 
if Jesus truly rose from the dead, then you will rise from the dead. It's not like, well, Jesus was God, so He rose from the dead, so we don't know what's going to happen to, you know, to us. I mean, He says they're, they're both true. One is not true without the other. You put those two passages together, it, it's, it's abundantly clear. And then in 1 Corinthians he says, And if Christ is not risen, so if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. He, he continues the argument, furthers the argument. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith, all that you're believing is vain, it's futile. And you're still in your sins. I mean, the resurrection is fundamental to the gospel. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And now he brings it back to the same point in 1 Thessalonians. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men the most... Miserable, pitied. And think about it. Really? This is all there is? I mean, there's some great times on earth. Great times you experience the grace of God with family, and you can think of a number of hobbies that you like to do, and pleasures, and all of those other things, but, I mean, if this is all there is, it's a pretty miserable existence, isn't it? But this is not all there is. And you have hope. And while your bodies are winding down and, and, and they will be overtaken by death one day, if Jesus doesn't return first, you will rise. Because Jesus rose. The basis of our changing is because of, of Christ. I love sharing this story and I've done it a, a number of times uh, Usually like to share it at a funeral. And um, just did in the last one I preached. And it's about the game Red Rover. Used to play Red Rover. You form a line. You lock arms. And someone from the other team tries to run as hard and as fast as they can and build enough force you know, to break through the, the other team's line. Think of the resurrection in the same way. Think of what Jesus accomplished. Think about Adam. Adam was put on the earth, never meant to die. He was given everything that he needed to last forever. He was given purpose. He's in perfect fellowship with God. There was no sin. And whenever the fall came and sin came, death, came. And you can just see that hammered home over and over in the, in the Old Testament. The promise, uh, there's going to be a seed that's going to come from the woman, and Eve has the first child, and she basically says, is this him? I've got a man from the Lord. And you go along, and then you get to the genealogy, and, and he died. And, and such and such begat him, and he died, and he died, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. And the point is, in Adam we all die. We, we, we follow after Adam, and because we sin, death comes. And we go in the grave, and we don't come out of the grave. 
for us, sin and death and hell all had their arms locked tight. And with the sons of Adam on the other team, no matter how hard they tried, they could not break the bonds of the great trifecta. They were undefeated. And one day, they said, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Jesus on over. And He broke the power of sin. And He conquered the enemy of death. And He came through the grave. And He is the forerunner. He's the first fruits. And, and He led the way for all of those in Him who die to, to make it through. It's a comfort that Christ is coming and it's first based on the resurrection. The second comforting fact is Christ Himself is coming for His saints dead or alive. Christ Himself is, is coming. Look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive at the coming of the Lord and remain shall be caught up, shall be snatched away together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these, with these words. Christ is seen here coming. There's no mention of judgment. Same as in Revelation 19. And Paul wants them to understand that when Jesus comes, He's going to come for those who are already dead and those who are living. Um very similar to John 14, verses 1 through, through 3. You remember John 14? Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you under my sight, under myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to the disciples. It's very personal. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will return. And I will personally receive you. So that where I am, there you may be also. He's talking to His church. It's wedding language. The... Christ has a bride and He's going to His Father's house. You remember the whole idea in the Jewish wedding? The the arrangement is made, the dowry is established, and then you've got the betrothal period, a period of time where after the deal is is done, the, 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 the groom goes back to his family home, his Father's house, to prepare to receive his bride. 
That's what Jesus is saying when He says, I go to prepare a place for you. There's plenty of room in my Father's house. I'm going to go make a place for my bride. That's what He's saying. And then, when that was done, after the appropriate time, He, the groom, would then return with a great wedding procession, the ten virgins and the lamps. As you know, they're going to go to the bride's house, they're going to get the bride, and the whole wedding party is going to go to the Father's house where there's going to be the great wedding celebration, and then the bride and the groom are going to be together forever and ever and ever. The marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus talks about. John 14 is wedding language. You believe in God, believe also in me. Um, and he's coming for his bride. And, and, and Paul is saying to the Thessalonians here, he's, gonna, he's not going to leave the part of his bride that's already died before he comes. And, and he's not going to leave the part of his bride that is alive when he comes. Jesus is going to come for his bride, period. And he's going to take them to his father's house because he's prepared the place and he's prepared the way. And you remember what the disciples say. They, they get it, but they don't get it. Um, and Thomas gets a bad rap. And I would say, having never crossed over the other side, and you may say the very same thing that Thomas did. You know, when I grew up, I'm going to date myself. There, there used to be a TV show called Different Strokes. Anybody remember Different Strokes? You know, the little short dude on there, whenever somebody would say something to him and he didn't understand, it's typically his older brother, he'd say, what you talking about, Willis? I think that's exactly what Thomas is saying to Jesus, not trying to be sacrilegious. I, I think he's, I mean, he's saying, I don't get it. Well, what are you talking about? It doesn't add up, it doesn't compute. And what does Jesus say? I mean, he says, how can we know the way? We haven't been there. How can we know where you're going? How can we know the way? And what does Jesus answer? There are multiple ways to get to God. There are many different streams flowing into the same... It's the same God, whether you're a Jew or a Muslim or a Christian. I mean, there's all talks about Jesus and all talks about Abraham. Is that what he said? Jesus said, Thomas, Timberlake Baptist Church, Brian, Ah. And the way to the Father. I am the exclusive way. I am the only truth. And there's only life in me. That's how you get to the Father. That's how you get to be part of the bride. It's, it's through Jesus, and Jesus is coming or his bride. So if you have someone who's preceded you in death, you're here uh, alive, and Christ comes today, and your wife or your son or your daughter or whoever it is, is already in the ground, their spirit is with Jesus, the body is there, they're going to beat you to the Lord. They're going to come up out of the ground first, and you're going to watch them. And then you are going to be called up and you will be with them and with the Lord in the air. Hallelujah. That's what he's saying. Dead or alive, he's coming for, for both. Now, there's, there's several differences between these passages about the rapture and the second coming of Christ. This is not the second coming. This is the rapture. The second coming 
Matthew 24, Jesus is coming on the clouds. Here we are called up in them with Him. In the second coming, the angels gather. In the rapture, Jesus personally gathers. That's what He's saying. For the Lord Himself will descend. In the second coming, nothing is said about the resurrection. As the basis for His coming here, it's, it's the whole main reason. Because Jesus rose, the dead will, will rise too. The third comforting fact is that Christ will come before His wrath is unleashed on the earth. Christ will come for you. That's why it's comforting. You think it would be comforting if Jesus was going to come for you after He poured out His wrath on you and everybody else? Jesus is coming for the church and it's a comfort because He's coming before the judgment upon the earth. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He ends verse 4. And He keeps right on trucking. Now, what's the contrast here? But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now, pay attention for you yourselves perfectly know or know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. He identifies two different events in these passages. Verse 15, You who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord... And in verse 2, he talks about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a very clear uh, title or reference. It's used 19 times in the Old Testament. It's the judgment of God. The day of God. The day of the Lord is going to come. It's used four times in the New Testament. There's no question about what Paul's talking about here. The day of the Lord is the, the coming judgment of God. So, is Paul just continuing his thought? Is everything that Paul's talking about... If the day of the Lord is clear, we know what it is, then is, is that what Paul's been talking about all along? And there's no rapture? Or is he talking about two different things? I think it's very clear, as I'm getting ready to show you, that he's talking about two different things. First of all, there's a contrast here. But, I've been talking to you about this, but, let me tell you about something else. He uses two different words. And there are two events and two groups. Look at all the pronouns. Verse 2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief of the night. So he identifies his topic. Now look at verse 3. Watch the pronouns. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But look at verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. So as this day should overtake you as a thief, you are the sons of light, the sons of day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. There are two different pronouns. It's contrast. And there's also two different characteristics 
Look at how he describes people that the day of the Lord is going to fall upon and believers that Jesus is coming for. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. You are sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. Can you get any greater contrast between light and darkness, day and night? I mean, you see what Paul's trying to do here? And there's not, not, no question that he's talking about two different groups. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Let us watch and be sober for those who sleep. He's talking about the unbelievers sleep at night. And those who, are, who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He describes unbelievers here as, as drunk, totally inebriated out of their mind in, in darkness. I mean, it wasn't bad enough that, that the unregenerate state is, is like a drunk that, that, that can't think and you're in pitch black. You know, you can just picture a drunk groping around in the dark. And he says, you're not that way. You are of the light. Let, our, let's, let us who are of the day. He doesn't say be of the day. He says you are of the day. You are of the light. Therefore, because you are, act this way. Believe this. And he gives the reason that we will miss it in verse 9. The helmet of the hope of salvation. The contrast and the two different characteristics and two different titles for the day of the Lord. And, and then he says... Why? Why is there two different comings, two different people? For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort and edify one another, just as you are also doing. What is wrath? Was He talking about? What does He say back in verse 3? When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them. The day of the Lord is the day of wrath. It's the day of, of judgment. And God did not appoint us, His church, to wrath. I think I've shared this with you before. But one of the logical statements that I heard by a uh, professor one time, and he's reading this passage... He talked about the concept that Christ gives between he is the, he's the husband and, and the church is the, is the bride. And he said, Jesus here says he did not appoint his church to, to wrath. And the wrath is when Christ is going to come and he's going to pour out in full judgment his his anger, His blows upon, upon the earth. Jesus is not a proponent of domestic violence. Jesus is not a wife beater. Jesus did not appoint His precious bride that He laid His own life down, shed His own blood for, prepared a way so that they could be in heaven, that He would then leave her here to be bludgeoned by His judgment and wrath. 
He's going to come for His bride. And He's going to take His bride out. And He's going to take His bride to Himself. And He's going to take His bride back to the, back to the Father's house. And that should be a comfort to you. If the resurrection applies to you, because you've believed in Jesus, she comforts you whether you're alive or whether you have someone who is dead. And it should comfort you that the coming of Christ for you has nothing to do with wrath. It has everything to do with Jesus coming and receiving you unto Himself. Verse 11, Therefore comfort each other and teach each other. Build each other up just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Peace, be at peace amongst yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, be but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. I mean, all of this, all of these commands are on the basis of the fact that Christ is coming for His church and He's returning and, and that you should take comfort in that. That's the doctrine. Here's the application. If you believe Jesus is coming for you, comfort yourself and be urged to to recognize those who, who labor in the gospel and admonish you before the Lord comes. Esteem their work, them in their work, highly. Be at peace amongst yourselves. Be, be undivided. Warn those who are unruly. Comfort those who are weak in heart. Uphold those who are without strength. Be patient with all. See that you don't return evil for evil to anyone. Why? Because vengeance is mine and the Lord's coming. But always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And it goes on. If you know Jesus Christ, His coming is a joy. That's great comfort. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you've never believed upon His name, if you've never repented toward God and placed your faith in the finished work of Christ, sadly you're in the second half of that passage and you can read it the opposite in the night. And you have been appointed under wrath. Wrath is being stored up just like it was for me just like it was for anybody else in here that has believed upon Jesus because every day you live and I lived in rebellion toward God and wrath is being stored up for all of that rebellion and sin. And one day, the dam will be full. The trumpet will sound. Not the trumpet uh, calling of deliverance here, but the trumpet of judgment. And it will be unleashed. Did you know that same wrath was unleashed 
on Jesus and He absorbed it all. And you don't have to face that wrath that's coming, that's being stored up because of your sin, because Jesus absorbed it for you if you put your faith and trust in Him. There's no other way. There's, there's no way that you can do part and Jesus does part. It's full repentance and full trust in Him. And then you can look forward to Christ coming. And you can be sorry if someone dies um, of the separation, but you can have the hope that you'll see them again and that you'll go to heaven too and that Jesus will come for you as part of His bride. Let's see by your heads. It's your opportunity to respond to the Word. Respond to God. We prayed that, that we wouldn't hear my voice, we would hear God's voice. Did you hear God speak to you today? Did He put His finger on you in some area of your life? Either as a believer in light of how you're supposed to live with the coming of Christ or, or maybe that you know you're not part of the church. You know you've never trusted Christ. Why not today be the day? Why not spend the first Easter celebrating the resurrection and that it be real for you, personal? Because now it applies to you. It's to where before you talked about it as a fact. Now it means something. Father, we come before you and thank you for your truth. Thank you that you're coming. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is, is coming for his bride. Thank you that that's great comfort. Father, I pray for all of us here that, that we would live in light of that. We would live in accordance with who we are. Father, I also pray for those who are here that, that have never truly surrendered their hearts to Christ. I pray that today would be that day and that they would be able to celebrate all that Jesus has accomplished and it would be for them. I ask it all in Jesus' name.